this week on the Backtable Podcast. Those who have an interest in ultrasound and drooling, air digestive disorders, and I think part of it is you, know, you talk to people and then you're just like, oh, how are you using this technology? And then you have this moments where you're just like, oh, I should have thought about that too. That's awesome. And then I think just having that sort of you know, collaboration is great. And then one thing we don't talk about is just that collaboration can be really fun especially when you're hearing tidbits about like what other people are doing and how you can incorporate it into your practice and for your patients. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric ENT, and I have an awesome guest today. I have Dr. Elton Lambert. He's a pediatric otolaryngologist and associate professor at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. He has a practice focused in pediatric air digestive disorders, drooling, and nasal airway obstruction at Texas Children's Hospital. He is here today to talk to us about head and neck ultrasound in children. Welcome to the show, Elton. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on. It's great to great to see you again. It's great to see you too. Will you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and, and your practice? Yeah. So as you mentioned, I practice pediatric otolaryngology at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. I've been in practice for eight years now. My practice has grown to include anywhere from airway, swallowing, air digestive disorders, nasal air obstruction, septoplasties, rhinoplasties. And you know, I'm excited to talk to you here about a technology that I'm passionate about in children, ultrasound that has all sorts of applications that are growing every single day. That's awesome. All right. Well, let's let's jump into it. Can you give us some background on how ultrasound has traditionally been used in pediatric otolaryngology, just to kind of set the stage? Yeah, of course. Ultrasonography and the application of ultrasonography in children really started within the confines of head and neck pathology and whether that be congenital neck masses, lymphadenopathy, things of that nature, and then neck abscesses. So with ultrasonography, there's a lot of applications to it. It's low cost. So especially in low resource settings, it can be very advantageous. But if you get used to it in what we call point of care ultrasound, where instead of just a radiologist or radiology tech using the ultrasound, when the surgeon is using the ultrasound, you can definitely get a sense of the correlates between the pathology that you're seeing and the imaging that you are noticing. But classically, and we all saw to think about the neck abscesses, whether it be within the deep cervical neck, to some extent, peritonsillar abscesses, but those are kind of the main ways in which we had been using ultrasonography, especially as an alternative to CT scans, which have the disadvantage of radiation, as well as if you are in a low resource setting, you may not have access to a CT scan. That's great. You mentioned point of care ultrasound. When I think about ultrasound, I don't have much experience in being the operator of the ultrasound probe and seeing the images. But, you know, a lot of it is very tech dependent. 
some of the ultrasound that we traditionally do with lymphadenitis or congenital neck masses, I feel like there's usually whoever's doing it overall, it's pretty consistent. But even that, some of the common things can be very technician or tech dependent too. Tell me a little bit about point of care of ultrasound. And is that, you know, how you got training in ultrasound uh, within PEDSOTO? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. As I mentioned before, so classic ultrasonography, there's a certain throughput that occurs, surgeon orders, it goes and then you go to some radiology suite or the ultrasound tech will come to the patient and then they scan. And then there may or may not be communication between the ultrasound tech and the radiologist and for the imaging and the views that you're getting. Now, one of the disadvantages that occurs sometimes with that is like, frankly, you can have scanning of the incorrect area, not necessarily having the great views, the best views. And then so when you as a surgeon who understands the anatomy and know what you're looking for, that can definitely be an advantage where you're taking the ultrasound probe in real time scanning. There's some applications where the patient may be also doing certain maneuvers. You can instruct them to move the head and neck around just so you can get a better sense of how things are moving real time. And that's definitely can be an advantage when the surgeon themselves are producing, are doing point of care ultrasound of the head and neck. In terms of training, I was fortunate. I had uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Ron Carney, who was with me at UT Houston um, for residency. And he did a significant amount of ultrasonography, if, especially with thyroid, basically for looking for thyroid nodules, as well as performing in-office fine needle aspiration for concerning nodules and lesions within the thyroid. And that was my first exposure. And just getting a feel for that and how that could be used in the clinical care and ambulatory setting, that was my first foray or first exposure to that. Now, in addition, if you want to take it to the next step, there's formal training for ultrasonography for head and neck surgeons for the otolaryngologists. And I think since it is such a young field, and there was a lot of back and forth that was the best way, or there's going to be certifications, how is going to be proctoring, was a simple course going to be okay. And then I think as time has gone on, there is the sense of, well, at least if you're starting, you need to just get the basics right. Like, what do all the knobs and the buttons on the ultrasound machine mean Like, what they, to get your best view? And then, so the first step, if you're interested in any sort of ultrasonography, especially point of care, head, neck, or otherwise, is going to be just the American College of Surgeons has a course that you can do for ultrasonography. And then there's subspecialty courses for head, neck. I took mine through the American Academy of Otolaryngology, but there's definitely other ways that it can be incorporated. Interestingly enough, Point of care ultrasound in the broader points of medicine, it's just increasingly be, been shown to be an integral part of medicine across subspecialties. And um, so the great thing is it's being incorporated into medical school curriculums now. And yeah, I think the medical school curriculum, I mean, the next generation of physicians and surgeons are going to be even more comfortable with it in the head and neck and 
other regions of the body just because they'll have that background. Yeah, that's a great point. Because I do remember when I was in medical school, I think as early as anatomy, they tried to start showing us anatomical structures on films, on CTs, actually, you know, and at that point, it wasn't quite scrolling. It was actual films and going through it. And so we think of being able as a head and neck surgeon, you know, being able to read your own films, right, before you operate. And so when you put it that way, it is very similar in terms of, okay, this is another tool, whether it's imaging or how am I going to use this for intervention for the procedure itself? So that's a great way to think of it. So let's get into pathology. So let's first talk. I know we're going to talk about salivary pathology as well as some laryngeal and airway pathology, both of which could probably be two-hour topics on their own. But let's get to the nuts and bolts of um, salivary pathology. Tell me how you use ultrasound for salivary pathology in children. I mean, I traditionally think of drooling, but do you use it for other, other reasons? I think one of the more interesting ways that I use ultrasound in my practice, and it can be point of care, non-point of care, and there are a whole host of reasons why children get salivary gland swelling. And one of the pathologies that we're used to seeing is juvenile recurrent parotitis. So I've seen multiple children come in where they have recurrent swelling of the face, especially at the angle of the mandible. And Yeah, they're getting antibiotics over and over and over again. And the thought process is, well, it's a recurrent lymphadenopathy or recurrent swelling of a lymph node. And so when I see that, first you have to just spend some time with the parents, just kind of like really what's the pattern and where exactly is it occurring? And so whether it be point of care or send the children off for an ultrasound, What I found is that you can definitely get a sense of whether the swelling is is occurring intraparenchymal or whether it's an associated lymph node. So few patients, I mean, I saw one even within the few weeks where they had a few courses of antibiotics thinking that was lymphadenopathy, but just the ability to resolve whether it's a true lymph node versus parotid swelling and paratitis like getting the diagnosis of um, juvenile recurrent paratitis and like going down that pathway instead of a lymphadenopathy pathway, which are two different beasts altogether. For salivary gland pathology, there's just masses in, masses in general, and then whether it be masses arising from the salivary gland or in the adjacent areas of the salivary gland, especially within the submandibular region, and whether or not you can tell or get a differential just for ultrasound once again that's another talk unto itself but then uh, being able to have fine needle aspiration have diagnoses as well as the ability to perform procedures in a way to get pathology those are definitely important within head and neck ultrasound but it's also important to know the limits we've seen also a few kids where you use ultrasound, you assume that it's going to be a lymph node, or you assume it's going to be some other pathology. But when you start getting these large masses, you just really need to know when it's more appropriate to get the cross-sectional imaging, like CT and MRI. So yeah, everything, all these imaging modalities are complementary. And so when you're just knowing what the dispensive adventures of them is important as well. Does it help you distinguish which type of imaging you're going to get, uh, CT versus MRI? 
Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I think it definitely whether it's a cystic lesion versus a solid lesion. I mean, that's that's like two broad categories of lesions on ultrasonography. Now, for the most part, whether it frankly be cystic or solid, if there are limits of your ultrasound, like you start noticing yeah, the lesion or the mass, it's going deeper than the limits of the ultrasound. If your imaging characteristics start to be more fuzzy and more grainy and not as resolute as close superficially. And really, if you can't get a just a good surgical plan in the case of a cystic lesion, versus you can't see the entirety of the solid lesion, then it's worth getting cross-sectional imaging at that point. I have a general rule to say, yeah, if you're starting to see anything that's solid that's over two centimeters, definitely towards like three centimeters, that the depth of that, you start to not be able to see exactly what's going on and what structures it's uh, interacting with if you have invasion of any other structures. So at that point, I definitely getting a CT or MRI in that case and would be more beneficial. Tell me a little bit about how ultrasound fits into your to the kids that present with sialuria. Let's get into that a little bit more. Oh yeah, sure. So in general, you know, when you have a child who is presenting with the withdrooling, the vast majority of them is going to be some sort of dysphagia, concurrent dysphagia as well, some sort of swallowing difficulty. But there are going to be a few different modalities that we can offer uh, and our treatment modalities that we can offer would be medications through anticholinergics, botulinum toxin injection to the salivary glands, as well as surgery. And surgeries can be various types of duct procedures versus gland removal procedures. So one of the things that when I started, I made a point in my practice when kids come to me with a history of drilling, I have an understanding of the anticholinergics, what are the associated side effects and relative dosing, but I can offer both surgery and the injections. So by offer, by having understanding of all that, you can give the parents a little bit, I think they can get a little bit better informed decision as to which may be best since you have an understanding of all the all the modalities. So barring the plan not to use medication, they're not going to use medication. The bottom toxin injections and surgery, those that's where ultrasonography is helpful. So it's been years, close to a decade or more that we've understood that if you were to take a botulinum toxin injection and inject it into the submandibular or parotid gland, if you do it by palpation, we are just using landmarks and just uh, injecting into those glands versus getting the ultrasound, getting a view of uh, the salivary gland, injecting and unconfirming that the tip of the needle is in the salivary gland tissue and injecting then, we have known for years that ultrasound guidance is superior to just doing it by landmarks. And then in addition to that, there's two settings in which the injections can be done. 
One setting is right in the clinic using a combination of local topical anesthetics and also a systemic analgesic, so it would be acetaminophen and ibuprofen, injecting right there in clinic versus in the operating room. And so the decision between which one is going to occur depends on a lot of factors. One factor is like, frankly, a lot of these children have comorbidities and where it's not necessarily safe or advantage for them to go and get an, an anesthetic. But in addition to that, what I found is any child or the family of a child who has complex medical needs, they really understand what their child can tolerate and what they can't tolerate. So barring an obvious medical comorbidity, I do tend to leave it up to the families. It's like, do you think they would prefer a clinic visit or an operating room visit? And they have their multiple reasons why like they prefer one versus the other. And I found like 95% of the time when the family's just like, I think they're going to do fine in the clinic setting, then they're going to be right most of the time. That's on the injection side. Now, ultrasound use for surgery, when you have just a child who's primarily coming into you, they've never had surgery before. It doesn't necessarily have much use there. Now, in patients who may need revision procedures or um, further procedures, I've had children who have had a submandibular gland excision, but just using ultrasound, you can confirm just like, oh, you do have some uh, residual salivary gland tissue there. I mean, that's very useful. But there's not a lot of other applications from a surgical perspective. I'm sure you can, just like in thyroid disease, you can use it for maybe incision planning, but I haven't used it that much for that. So in terms of point of care ultrasonography, full salivary glands for drooling, in terms of the interventions that we can offer, kind of like the injections themselves are going to be the main application of ultrasonography for drooling. Do you usually inject all four glands? And how many units do you tend to put in? Correct. Yes. So I tend to inject all four glands. In my hands, all four gland injections works well, especially since... Even if you do four gland injections, there's just going to be a certain percent of patients who don't respond, and that's just the reality of it. And so if you don't do all four, I find it very hard to resolve. It's like, well, you're a non-responder. Is it because we didn't do all four glands? It's very hard. I've had on occasion some families who are rightfully so concerned about the risk of dry mouth serostomia after the injections. And so we'll come to agreement to do the parotids only versus the submandibular only, but that tends to really happen. And then for the units are injected, first thing is going to be, there's no well-agreed upon dosing for drilling purposes for children or really adults. It's all based on experience and what's in the literature. For me, I tend to do if children are less than 10 kilograms, they get 10 units per gland. Between 10 to 20 kilograms, they get 15 units per gland. And then over 20 kilograms, they tend to get 20 units per gland because it, at least in adults, there has been some evidence that there's probably not a lot of benefit going over 20 units. 
But for somebody who's going to listen out there is going to say, oh, I do something completely different. And ultimately, a lot of these things are in your practice, in your hands, what works, minimizing risks, maximizing benefits. And it's worked for me for for multiple, multiple years. What um, needle size do you like and what kind of syringe do you use? Oh, good question. So 27 gauge needle. That has been a balance between what needles are echogenic. I mean, you can actually see it on ultrasonography and seems to not cause the children as much pain. From a safety perspective, I tend to use just a 1cc syringe for each gland that we're injecting. And I put only the amount of volume that we're going to inject into the salivary glands. Cause just from a, I mean, just from a safety perspective, I think you can get like super ultra focused on what you're doing, looking at the ultrasound screen, injecting. And then if you try and inject and then stop, I think from a safety perspective, I think I do one syringe per gland. And then whatever the amount is, just so you know, you calculate it before you know it's there and then you can just inject in uh, one false swoop. That's a good tip. Do you have any other tips or tricks for salivary gland injection with Botox and ultrasound? Like, are there certain positions or what if I can't tell, I can't find my needle or I should be able to see the gland filling up, right? When the Botox is being injected, any tips that have helped you for situations where you're like, Ugh. It's not going as, it's not going as Elton told me. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so I think like before you start any intervention procedure, just getting your ultrasound and getting a lay of the land for what's the patient's gland structure, anatomy, that's kind of the first step even before you inject. Most reliably for me, it's for the product lens. What I will do is I'll put the top of my probe at the ear canal. And then I'll swing the like inferior limb, like more posteriorly. And, and it's just kind of like one thing when you're doing these point of care procedures, you know, the anatomy. So like you're used to, where is the tail of the parotid? It's the tail of the parotid, which is the medius portion of the parotid. It's going to be, if you draw a line from the ear canal, it's going to cheat a little bit slightly towards the SCM. So I'm going in that direction. And then once I have that, I'm going to look at the gland longitudinally and going through the product, product gland. And that's the easiest way. But you have children who, for example, have microtia or other ear abnormality, the product gland, there can be a lot of variability in where that is. So first, even before you get the needle out, get a lay of the land, and then see what's going to be the largest amount of tissue that you have, and then injecting there. For the submandibular gland, similar story. There's a lot of kids where the mandible is in the way and you can't get your classic, oh, I can see the entirety of the gland. And even your needle and your ultrasound may be out of plane. So really, like before I start, just spending some degree of time just figuring out what the lead line is even before and you pick up the needle. That's that's the big tip. And is there a youngest age that you'll do this in or, you know, they should be six or have you found that anatomy or age matter by age that anatomy might affect it or the Botox? I mean, I know you went by weight, which is very helpful. Yeah. So I haven't had an age limit. I mean, they're definitely early on. 
and it's very trepidated about injecting infants. But I found it just depends on the indications. If an infant comes in or they're in the NICU or they're still in the hospital and there's a consult for the injections, I think the first thing we have to ask ourselves is what else have you tried? I mean, first of all, if they haven't tried any anticholinergic medication whatsoever or they don't have a reason where an anticholinergic would be contraindicated for them, like that's the first step. You have to start with the anticholinergic medications and the relative comorbidity. If you have an infant who's having significant drooling but they're not having respiratory complications, I think that's a child you can hold off on. If they're having significant respiratory complications, then you have to think of other air digestive reasons why they could be having respiratory issues, aspiration pneumonias, recurrent respiratory hospitalizations. If they don't have any of that at some point, there's probably not an urgency. So just like anything else, patient selection, especially for the younger children. For anatomy, like I alluded to before, the younger the kids are, the subendivic gland is a lot harder to find to the point where you are really aiming behind the mandible into the floor of mouth before you find the gland. And then it's a not perfect plane to line up the needle tip and the ultrasound probe. It's also, I think, though the those are the things that you have to worry about in infants. Things you can do to assist in any patient, not just an infant, where you're having trouble finding a subendivagon, which is more in the floor of mouth, include like having an assistant deliver the gland into the neck by putting a finger through the floor of mouth, extending the neck a little bit more, getting a shoulder roll, things like that can help those challenging injections. Let's go ahead and switch gears to the use of ultrasound in children for voice and airway. Tell me a little bit about that. First of all, I have a partner, Dr. Jelena Ancoslan, who she did her trilogic thesis on the use of ultrasound for vocal fold immobility screening in post-cardiac surgery children. And since that time, the field within pediatric otolaryngology and the use of ultrasonography for airway, whether it be vocal fold issues, vocal fold immobility, and other airway applications, that's really taken off. One of the reasons why, one of the main reasons why you can use it in children is the thyroid in children isn't as calcified or isn't calcified like it is in adults especially when you get within the 40s and above, your thyroid cartilage starts to become more calcified, and that limits the visualization of the vocal folds in adults. But in children, you don't have that disadvantage. That's one of the reasons it's so ubiquitously used. In patients who you have a concern for a vocal fold immobility issue, whether it be congenital iatrogenic from cardiac surgery and intrathoracic surgery or, or cervical or neck surgery. Really, the ultrasound is a great screening tool for um, vocal fold immobility, or it can confirm whether the vocal folds are mobile. And whether those symptoms that we're concerned about include strider, 
hoarseness, dysphagia, the vocal fold ultrasound, it has proven itself to be an ongoing like tool for diagnosing and managing and following children who have vocal immobility. So you said it's a good screening tool, meaning I'm going to see good movement, but if I'm not sure if there's movement or it doesn't show me movement, I should probably scope. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So not everybody who gets a ultrasound for vocal cord evaluation is necessarily going to need a scope in your practice. Is that kind of because we have the ultrasound? Yeah, correct. Yeah. And it's been experiential over the last few years, especially on our inpatient service. Now, if a patient has hoarseness, like post-cardiac surgery, as an example, there's no other airway concerns, no concerns for strider, no concerns for noisy breathing, to some extent dysphagia as well. But dysphagia, we keep hitting these topics that can be their own topics of yeah, themselves for like an hour or two. I, yeah. um, but if you have known this combining things, like really poor hoarseness post-cardiac surgery, then in our practice, those children get a vocal fold ultrasound. And in that patient population, it's so much more important because it is understated how much the heart rate and blood pressure, how much fluctuates you can get from a flexible scope. And in that patient population, especially the car, the postcardiac patient, that is frankly detriment and dangerous for them to have like that much fluctuation. Yeah, those are tenuous kids. Yeah, they're all tenuous kids. So we're definitely more selective in the doing flexible scopes. And if there's other reasons, like definitely the noisy breathing strider where it could not only be the vocal fold concerns, well, diagnoses such as laryngomalacia, post-intubation changes, then it is more likely for those children to get a scope. Now, our practice has essentially been based on symptoms. So if a patient has a symptom, you get a vocal fold ultrasound. There are some centers that have looked into, well, what if we just screen all children post-surgery or post-cardiac surgery with an ultrasound? Now, just like anything else, if you look for it, the number, the amount of children or the proportion of children post-cardiac surgery who do have vocal fold immobility, it's higher than we all think. But then which one of those kids where it's going to be clinically relevant, where they're going to compensate anyway, wouldn't have to need any further intervention. That's interesting. Is there information, we think of mobility of the vocal cords on the ultrasound, is there other information that you can get on ultrasound that you don't necessarily have on flex? Or what else does the ultrasound tell me about the vocal cords? Can you see lesions on it? Is a nodule too small to pick up or a, a granulation, granuloma that's sitting, anything like that? Swelling? Right. Yeah, it's yeah. a good question. So yeah, my client, Dr. Ryan Costin, she's also done um, work on nodules and the ability to see nodules on the vocal fold as a result. That is an application which is clear that having a surgeon do an ultrasound and knowing what it looks like in flexscope and knowing what to look for on ultrasound, I'm not entirely sure that in a non-point-of-care fashion, that application would have ever been found. Literature hasn't matured as much in the the like post-extubation patients, whether 
you're going to find granulomas or not. And just like with any technology, you have to just wonder what the application is going to be. If you have a significant enough granuloma or a significant amount other types of intubation changes, is that the child which we're not going to flex scope anyway? Probably not. So definitely a study I've always been interested in doing. But just like with any technology, I think the ambulatory nodule application and ambulatory vocal fold um, lesion application has been there. The vocal fold immobility application, that's, de that's definitely there. I think if we have a patient where they're having such significant issues post-extubation, like the myriad of, of diagnosis they can have from that, that is a point whereby I don't think the ultrasound is necessarily gonna, going to replace flexscope or bronchoscopies, like laryngoscopies and bronchoscopies for the things like granulation tissue and granulomas. What about, you know, I know we're talking about vocal cord, but what about the supraglottis? Like, are there, you know, for laryngomalacia, have people started using ultrasound for that? Yeah, so they have. And the thing that, or to cover in like in a podcast or the, uh, the podcast for people who are listening, at different applications, the orientation of the ultrasound probe definitely definitely matters. So for a vocal full ultrasound where you're looking at mobility, doing a transverse view in ultrasound is akin to an axial view, uh, axial view on a on a CT scan. That's going to be your go-to for like looking at mobility. There have been a few people who have looked at laryngomalacia and ultrasound use, and it definitely has a viable use. For that application, what I have been doing has been looking at it more of a longitudinal or, sa or a sagittal view, able to see if you can pick up on the Paglossin or retinoid uh, prolapse associated with laryngomalacia. It's, definite, it's definitely there. And probably another case where, from an academic standpoint, is like, yes, we can definitely see it and find it. I, I think there may be enough other etiologies that we're all worried about in the back of our head, like molecular cysts and things of that nature, where we're concerned whether we're going to pick those up or not. Do uh, you think it has been work on it? I haven't necessarily incorporated it into my practice. But it's like anything, I think having the correlates in the anatomy, at some point, if you want to incorporate it, doing a bunch of flexible scopes and doing an ultrasound, see what the correlates are. And at some point, maybe some of these low-risk kids who don't need surgery, or you just need a diagnosis and or they have noisy breathing based on your experience, you know it's learning unless you just need some sort of confirmation. Okay, I think having a baby be upset with a flexible scope and doing an option, I think that would be awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Tell me, what about other lower pathologies like subglottic stenosis or... You know, is that where ultrasound been used for that? Yeah. So in our group, we did a study where we compared ultras, we compared subglottic diameter on endoscopy and subglottic diameter on ultrasound. And there was like high degree of correlation, high degree of 
accuracy and precision when we compare the two. Going back to the point about like post-intubation ultrasound or post-intubation applications of ultrasound in the head and neck, there have been groups that have definitely looked at can you see subloxanosis or scar bands in the sub in the subglottis? And ultrasound can be used for that as well. And going back to the point about the getting the right orientation. So in the study that we looked at the subglot diameter, we used all transverse views. And with that transverse view, it, it was good. There's good good correlation. I mean, I think if I had to go back and try and evaluate the whole subglottis. And not only, like we all know, like stenosis, they come in all shapes and sizes. It's not just like circular stenosis. Um, you can have more infraglot stenosis, kids who they are inferior subglottis that are almost kind of become like high cervical tracheal stenosis. If I had to go back, I think one of the ways we could evaluate is just using a sagittal view or sagittal longitudinal view so you can see the entirety of the subglottis. And I think using that, you could definitely see the narrowing along most of the airway and going from there. There have been other groups that have done screenings with ultrasound post-LTR, especially in patients where your endoscopic view if you have multi-level stenosis, especially multiple scar bands within the subglossus, and you're having a hard time resolving the three-dimensional limits post-LTR, there have been groups that have done that as well. And then they've also planned revision procedures, or that's their mechanism of surveillance. Using other image, I found using other Im- imaging modalities, whether it be post-LTR, or post-trach CT scan, it's very hard to get a sense of what things look like in the air, especially subglottis in post-LTR patients and, tra- and tracheostomy patients. And you can't tell the difference between secretions versus granulation tissue versus the airway itself. And I do think one thing I've found is the ultrasound for reasons I'm sure like an ultrasound physicist could tell me, it could tell me more than anything I could come up with. Like you don't really get a lot of interference from secretion so much in comparison to the cartilaginous um, framework. So I think that's also going to be an area where we continue to develop the technology and its applications. In terms of subglottic stenosis, does age matter? Meaning, so if I have a baby in the NICU where there's history of prematurity, has history of extubation, multiple intubations and extubations, and I can scope from above. That all looks good, right? We usually think of a DLB and let's go size the airway because the risk of subglottic stenosis is so high. Their airways are already so small to begin with. Is the precision with the ultrasound of like, you know, we're talking about a millimeter sometimes, right? Right. Can you get that precise on an ultrasound when you're measuring the subglottis? Or is this a better evaluation for like a child older, for example, like two years and up? Does that matter? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Like, I have not seen a study specifically in infants. So, I mean, I think you can definitely conceptualize, like, well, if you can visualize the subglottis in a toddler, that you should be able to do it in an infant as well. And so, in that specific case, 
the resolution and the amount of millimeters, can you technically like pick it up? Like, yes, you, yes, you can. But I think in the whole context of a post extubation failure infant, there's just so many other etiologies that you would be looking for, whether it be subglock stenosis, but undiagnosed tracheomalacia and granulation tissue, there starts to be come like so many things that need to be resolved, then it get direct visual inspection is going to be better. I mean, one of the broader points, which as we're talking, it's an evolution of what I think the best application is like for airway. If you are mainly concerned with one diagnosis for many of these patients, Postcardiac surgery, vocal fold immobility. May a patient who has recurrent croup where you want to just look at the size of their subglottis. And I think that's uh, that area. But beyond that, if you're starting to think about the children where you're concerned about like multi-level airway pathology and making a plan for that, I think it's going to be complementary. One example I actually think of off the top of my head, we had a patient here who had multi-level airway issues when their issue was posterior trachomalacia and vocal fold immobility. And we're trying to decide whether we should do something for the trachomalacia and how much the vocal fold immobility was going to play a role. And then this is a patient where we did a flex scope and the flex scope, like in infant, in infants in general, sometimes there can be poor visualization. So it was really hard to get a sense of what their vocal fold immobility was. And in that patient, we did serial vocal fold ultrasounds. And over time, we noticed like, oh, the vocal fold mobility is actually improving. So their specific airway manifestation, which was recurrent, recurrent apneas and things of that nature seemed to be more driven by the trachomalacia. So we addressed the trachomalacia or following the vocal fold. And so far, they've done really well. So I think in the multi-level airway patient, it's going to be complementary to your endoscopic value. Tell me, is there a role for kids with trachs that you are trying to, they don't tolerate the passive mirror or they can't cap? Have you used it to evaluate like suprasomal collapse or granulation or granulomas? Uh, I guess, I don't know, can, it, can you sometimes see distal to the trach? I guess it depends on how long the neck is. <laughs> How old they are. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. So a long time ago when we were designing the subglottic diameter study, there was a thought of like, oh, can we also evaluate for tracheomalacia as well? And I think if you talk to a, a lot of the practitioners who use echocardiograms, and it was clear that it's always hard to get a good tracheal window because of the shadowing from the ribs and the sternum. And so at least thus far, intrathoracic tracheal pathology is very difficult to use ultrasound for, and that's just with or without a tracheostomy. I think going back to one of the original points, when you're concerned about kind of multi-level airway, the ultrasound, that is where it starts to decrease in application. 
And maybe I think as the literature matures, will someone be able to say, okay, you can actually resolve granulomas versus granulomas, collapse, and all that. That is an area which I haven't used it as much. What I've used it significantly for like over and over and over again is for vocal full mobility or the confirmation of it, whether it be not tolerating past the mirror valve, if we're getting ready for decannulation, that is a manner in which I've used it, especially frankly for the children who have significant developmental delays or it, they may be hard to examine at baseline. So having a flexible scope where it's going to be upsetting or very uncomfortable for them, I've found that application. And um, so when I'm documenting, I'm getting ready for a child to be decannulated. Like documenting vocal full immobility is something we should all do. And I think doing it with a flexible scope versus an ultrasound, especially if you do with ultrasound where you're going to do your bronchoscopy anyway for a decannulation protocol, that's the main way I've used it for our patients with the tracheostomy. How often do you find that the ultrasound and the scope are consistent? Because there's probably kids where you're doing both on because the ultrasound you couldn't tell or with flex scope, sometimes it's really hard to tell. I mean, you know, I've had to slow down the recording and really look. And sometimes I, I still can't always tell, especially when they're really young. How often do you find that they're consistent in terms of the right cords out, for example, or the left cords out, for example? Right. Yeah. We've definitely looked at that again, and there's, there tends to be high concordance, but I think it's more likely than not. What we're finding is whether it be at child who you can't get them to soothe or calm. So your flex scope view is going to be concerning or it, you can't visualize as much as you can. And the children who I think the ultrasound starts to get more consistent is the ones where you have significant arytenoid hooding. And with that arytenoid hood, it just starts to become like really difficult to view. So that becomes where the ultrasound tends to be like better in those cases. That's a good point. That's interesting. Is there a role for ultrasound for dysphagia for, for a child that comes in? Do you use it in that setting? Whether they feel like something's stuck or... <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I haven't specifically. And then we, myself and my partners, when we're either practicing or showing the residents and train the residents, fellows, other trainees, or just like keeping up our skills, like you're always trying to like, see what else can you see? Like, like how else can it be used? And you can actually resolve the esophagus pretty well on the ultrasound. So one of the thoughts that we had is like, well, can you do things that calculate bolus transition times, things of that nature? And nothing, unfortunately, has stuck so far for dysphagia, especially from an airway perspective. And I think one of the things that we we struggle with, like if you think about the other ways that you can resolve dysphagia or evaluate this dysphagia, is your video fluoroscopic examinations and your flexible examinations. And in those two cases, you have some sort of quote unquote, like contrast so you can visualize, whether it be dye for your flexible endoscopic evaluations or contrast for your video fluoroscopic evaluations. 
both of those themselves are contrast. And we haven't really found like a good contrast. You feel, oh, you can follow saliva that's being followed. And like it just hasn't worked out well. One of the problems that happens, one of the, one of the main issues that happens with dysphagia is that you have like natural elevation of the larynx. And that really kind of throws off your, your visualization. Whereas when you look in the vocal folds, you're having movement in the transverse plane and that, that seems to be okay. But movement in the superior inferior plane, that tends to limit visualization uh, significantly. I'm not an expert in the use of ultrasound for feeding, like oral motor feeding, but a few faculty members around the country, our tangs around the country have been using it for evaluation for the tongue mobility, tongue ties, and seeing tongue movement, and and when it comes to breastfeeding and like bottle feeding, and whether or not we can track our outcomes and from a tongue mobility standpoint using ultrasound. I haven't used it myself, but once again, like a lot of these applications, they would have probably never come up unless it was a practitioner and using it, understanding the anatomy, having an interest in, are we missing anything from the anatomy standpoint that ultrasound can visualize and using it in that manner? That's interesting. Tips or tricks for when you do ultrasound for vocal cord mobility? And are your patients on a shoulder roll? What if they have a trachea? How does that affect it? Oh, yeah. So the main tips I have more than anything else is just practice, practice, practice. And then before using on the patient, the good thing is you can get feedback just doing it yourself, looking at the screen, and there's a specific angle. So like some of the best visualization can be just looking, windowing through your cricothyroid membrane and then angling superiorly. So there is a slight angle that you do have to get used to. Just starting on yourself is one of the things you can definitely do. In addition to that, when you're using an honor patient for the infants, I think just having a good swaddle is great and soothing them is great them with pacifiers and scanning them in a good position. The good thing is like if you brace yourself on the neck, you can follow them significantly. I've never found it to be like that difficult as long as the shoulders and the chest is off the way. I've found for patients who have tracheostomies, especially more for the older patients, I found that the extending the neck ever so slightly, and that tends to help just so, not, not necessarily for the, for the sake of the tracheostomy, it's just that like when you have to get that angle, where you drop your hands a little bit just to look at the vocal folds, and that in of itself is a little bit difficult to do when the tracheostomy tube is there. So I think extending the neck gives you a little bit more windowing to allow for that visualization. How do you how do you document the findings? Do you have to put the image for point of care ultrasound? Do you have to put the ultrasound images in Epic? Um, you know, I think of scopes and we have them on our towers. Sometimes mm -hmm. if you depending on how you record it, you can upload it into Epic. Is there a certain place that you put it? And is that just part of your physical exam, like when you document it? Correct. Yeah. So for non-interventional procedures, it's going to be a part of your physical exam. And then for those who want to incorporate it into your practice, if you're trying to figure out your 
evaluation and management management code. You as an auto learning gods in the current landscape, it's hard to document it with a like head and neck ultrasound reading, like CPT code, for example, because just the manner in which you're reading it, especially if it's a very limited, what I tend to use it is my EMN code as a part of the phys- physical exam or the extra time that is used to use the ultrasound. That's the, that's the main way. And similarly for the documentation, I'm just documenting my findings for the most part. We don't put it, we don't necessarily put it into the PAC system. Can you take a picture of the ultrasound and, and put it into Epic? That's something that you can do. But I think it's when you're looking for very targeted things, vocal flow immobility present or absent, like I think just document it in your clinical note, it would be sufficient. For any interventional procedures, especially interventional procedures where you can bill for use of the ultrasound, I think that's something where you have, you, you do have to be like very specific about your documentation. For most ultrasound applications, especially when you're using it for needle placement, and this is cross specialty, whether it be for an effing of the thyroid and the interventions like botulinum toxin injections to the salivary glands. If you're an orthopedic surgeon and you're using it for aspiration of a knee joint across the board, and if you're using it for needle localization, then best practice is really like taking a look with the ultrasound and then documenting that your needle is in your intended target and doing a snapshot of that at minimum and then putting that in your operative note or your clinic note. Now, in your workflow, you have to decide whether or not you're going to get the ultrasound pictures into packs versus ultrasound pictures stay on the machine and then getting into Epic somehow, but that tends to be best practice. And then with your experience with ultrasound for whether it's the salivary gland or vocal cord immobility, any limitations? that you found with the ultrasound? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of limitations. And I think fortunately, a lot of the limitations that we would technically find, you may find in more adults. I mean, if you have a child who, for whatever reason, has an abnormally calcified thyroid cartilage, that would definitely be a disadvantage. I haven't necessarily ran into that. I think from a practical standpoint, now it's not a limitation of the procedure, but how are you going to justify the cost of an ultrasound, for example, in your clinic? If you purchase an ultrasound, most of the point of care that you can't bill as if you're a radiologist, like reading ultrasound in like in our current guidelines and in our current um, atmosphere or environment, and there's not really a good uh, mechanism for that. So if you are going to incorporate it, you do have to think about and spend the time um, how, how are you going to obtain the ultrasound? How are you going to justify the cost associated with it? But other than that, in terms of your ability to perform the procedure, I mean, definitely patients who have increased subcutaneous tissue, whether it be because of obesity or things like that. Um, fortunately for our purposes, our targets, even with that, 
as long as you're less than four, so within less than four, less than three centimeters away from the target that you're resolving, I haven't found there to be much disadvantage. And within the head and neck, even in patients who have a significant subcutaneous tissue um, or subcutaneous fat, and you're still, you're definitely still within that range. So I haven't had um, that many issues. I had mentioned before, and the children with their submandibular glands are really in the floor of mouth and the mandible is in the way. That can be definitely problematic and you won't necessarily get the satisfying you're seeing your entire length of your needle through the ultrasound and hitting your target. And sometimes you have to kind of do a mental exercise where you're meeting your needle, where your ultrasound's going to be. That takes definite practice. But those are the few cases that I can think about where you have technical limitations in the head and neck in children. And as we start to round it out, any other final pearls or tips or thoughts about ultrasound in pediatric head and neck? Yeah, I think the main thing is if you know the anatomy and not just the radiographic anatomy, like you understand the surgical anatomy, you understand the relationship between different tissues, you understand the windows to see these anatomical structures. First thing to do is just to try it. I mean, you look and then it's like, oh, can I see the tonsil? If I do a transcervical approach from your ultrasound, it's like, yes, you can. You just have to try it. The ways in which they found that we could even look at the vocal folds through the neck was to just like see what we could see. And then once you see, and then it's like, oh, if you voice, oh, you can actually see that you can't see mobility. Can you see immobility? You know, it's one of these things where within medicine, it's a tool, but it's also like have a toy you can play with. Like, can I see this? Can I see that? And you can start, that's when you can start to be creative with the applications. What we talked about earlier about resolving the lymphadenopathy from the parenchyma, using ultrasound for that for me. I mean, that wasn't necessarily anything that I read necessarily. Just like, well, I mean, if they have true parotides, you should be able to see something on ultrasound, just something I started trying and then it just happened. So when you're starting out, just understanding that it's a tool, you know the anatomy, so it's not that hard as a surgeon to understand the cor the correlates between ultrasound and what you're used to seeing during procedures in the OR and the relationships and the access that you can have to many of these structures that we're used to seeing. Elton, if any of our audience wanted to reach out to you to learn more about ultrasound techniques. Definitely. I'm also happy to talk to anyone. My email address is e-m-a-s-h-e-l-a -E at texaschildrens.org. And I love talking to those who have an interest in ultrasound and drooling, air digestive disorders. And I think part of it is you, know, you talk to people and then you're just like, oh, how are you using this technology? And then you have this moments where you're just like, oh, I should have thought about that too. That's awesome. And then I think just having that sort of like collaboration is great and then one thing we don't talk about is just like collaboration can be really fun especially when you're 
hearing tidbits about like what other people are doing and how you can incorporate it into your practice and for your patients. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jamila Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.